Welcome to Spotlights, the podcast for the domestic abuse sector. In this series, Safe Lives are shining a spotlight on lesbian, gay, bisexual and trans plus people experiencing domestic abuse. Facing homelessness and temporary accommodation is a significant and common problem for victims of domestic abuse. But these challenges are often compounded for LGBT plus people by the potential risk of homophobia and hate crime. In this podcast, my colleague Colette Eaton-Harris meets with Leanne from Stonewall Housing, who explains how traditional housing options for victims of domestic abuse may be difficult for LGBT plus people to access. So I'm with Leanne from the organisation Stonewall Housing. Hi, Leanne. Hi. Can you tell us about your role then, Leanne, with Stonewall Housing? Yep. Um, so I'm the domestic abuse caseworker. Um, I sit within a partnership with Gallup and an organisation called London Friend. Um, so my role specifically is to provide, I support LGBT people who experience domestic abuse um, and I provide support around their housing. Um, so if they want to flee accommodation, if they have any tenancy issues around, that are maybe linked with the domestic abuse um, and if they're wanting to move or if they're obviously homeless or at risk of homelessness. Um, so I, yeah, I provide kind of more of the housing advocacy and advice. So um, I guess on my day-to-day, like I will call clients, but I often have face-to-face appointments or I assist people to go to the local council to present and do part seven, which is a homeless application, um, referring people to different housing agencies and refuges. Um, and I work really closely with Gallup and their domestic abuse team as well. Can you tell us a bit more about what Stonewall Housing do as an organisation? Yeah, um, so we are the specialist housing provider for LGBT people. Um, We are a London-based organisation, but we also work nationally to kind of raise awareness and do partnership working in other cities. Um, We provide supported accommodation to... Um, over 40 young people within London um, but we also provide a trans-specific support accommodation and um, advice and advocacy for basically anyone who identifies as LGBT plus um, who is um, looking for support and advocacy around their housing issues or if they're at risk of homelessness and or are currently homeless. So for, for those that don't work in this area could you say a bit more about why LGBT people in particular might have issues around housing? Um, yeah, so there's kind of a lot of um, wider issues um, that I guess people don't really think about, particularly within domestic abuse. Um, often LGBT people don't have the family support that maybe other people may have um, if they're in a violent relationship. Um, a lot of the clients that we support are fleeing abuse from their family members. Um, but even if they're fleeing abuse within a relationship, they maybe have had a negative relationship with their family in the past, so don't have them to kind of fall back on. Um, there's a lot of issues around, um, I guess, generally accessing housing for um, victims or survivors of domestic abuse who are LGBT. It's not considered an LGBT issue, domestic abuse. I think um, there's still the idea that it's, kind of an issue within heterosexual relationships I think we're moving towards considering family abuse more now but um there's still kind of the I guess the kind of public story of domestic abuse is still 
the victim or survivor being a woman and the perpetrator being a man. Um, obviously, kind of statistic-wise, there are more women in the world than there are LGBT people. So it's seen as a bigger problem within kind of women's situations, but um, it's recognised as a considerable problem within the LGBT community. Um, so therefore, I guess, if, if the story is not recognised for them, then they're not really sure what services are also available um, and whether those services will support their needs. Yeah, so it's that barrier of, first of all, them being able to name this is domestic abuse and then yeah. more than that, once they have named it, knowing where to take it. Yeah, that. definitely, knowing where to go. I mean, there's a lack of services anyway, um, but I think... If you're in London, there are a few, um, but it's kind of learning about those and knowing where to go. And if you maybe go to a mainstream service and you don't get asked whether you're LGBT, which is generally a huge issue, um, then you're not signposted to the right places. Um, there's kind of also the issue of, you know, if they don't want to come out to services. So, um, yes, we advise services to ask the question, but not everyone's going to want to come out, obviously. We all know that speaking about domestic abuse is telling a lot of personal details anyway. You're going to have to relive that situation over and over again when you're accessing support. Um, and if a part of that is you're, you're, you having to come out, then that can be kind of an additional barrier or something that people find difficult, especially if they've kind of had experience with those services in the past and not really trusted them. Yeah. And you said you um, offer a supported accommodation service to young people. Yeah. Are there particular kind of issues for young LGBT people, would you say? Um, a lot, as I said before, a lot of the people come to our service who are fleeing from their families. So most most of our service users in our um, supported accommodation who are 18 to 25 will have reached out to our service um if they've potentially come out to their family and been rejected. So they've been, have been kicked out of their home or maybe if, if they're not kicked out of their home, they're experiencing emotional abuse and often physical abuse whilst they're living there. So um, often um, they don't really have anywhere else to turn. Um, if they've come out to their family and it's the first people they've come out to, they maybe don't have friends to go to or the support network that others might have. Um, so if they, yeah, a lot of the time that is the reason why they come to our services. Um, and, and difficult for young people or any LGBT person in that situation if they're living with an abusive partner very difficult then for them to think about leaving that person and potentially yeah. facing homelessness if they've not yeah. got family to return to yeah definitely um, I see kind of quite a lot within my clients working as the domestic abuse caseworker a lot of the time I'm working, I tend to work with older clients just because we have a young person's worker, so we split our um, caseload. But um, when I'm kind of supporting people who are maybe like mid 30s, 40, um, they may not, they may have come to London years ago because it's seen as what we call as like a beacon city. So it's seen as a place where it's safe for LGBT people to be and they've connected with the community and they may have left wherever they lived because they weren't included or did, you know were isolated from family and friends and they've come here and found you know fell into a relationship which then potentially is abusive often you see that 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 person that is their abuser is potentially the only link they have with the city or the only person they know that's 
maybe accepted their sexuality or their gender identity. So it kind of, we obviously we know that it always takes, it's like on average seven times for someone to leave, but with those additional barriers, um, it's obviously even more difficult. I think we're seeing a lot more clients um, we, as well as any agency, I guess, is who have no recourse to public funds or potentially come from outside of the UK. And, and they're relying on that relationship to stay in the UK and have a visa and, you know, work or claim um, state support. And often in those cases, we find with our clients, they fled that country for a reason. And the reason is because of their sexuality and their fear of persecution. And then if they're, if they're in a relationship where um, that's the only person they know, often that is used as a form of control. So, you know, I know that immigration is used for control anyway, but it's more like, you know, if you leave me, I will out you to the whole of your family back home and here, and it isolates people even more, so. And for some yeah, people, the the potential consequence of that is that their family would seriously harm them or even yeah, kill them. Yeah, definitely, and if, you know, if there is a risk that if they leave that relationship, their immigration status is um, not secure, mm. and then, you know, obviously we all know the asylum process is really long, so if there's kind of, additional issues um that are within their situation um yeah it can make it even more dangerous if they have to go home so your clients what particular issues do they have with housing yeah um so i guess um with lgbt people who are experiencing domestic abuse um you would usually follow the same kind of caseworker role that you would do in any domestic abuse organization um but i think there's specific issues around LGBT people accessing specialist domestic abuse services, so refuges um, in particular. Obviously, um, a large number of my client group are male, and there aren't really any male refuges at all across the whole country. And there are a few, and there are more male domestic violence workers, specifically within the women's sector or within the domestic abuse um, organisations they're coming about but it's still a huge huge shortage and even if they are male specific they're not lgbt specific so it kind of narrows it down even more um we work really closely with an organization called saint mungo's in london who and that's the only they are the only people in london that have an lgbt specific supported accommodation for um gay men so it's really, really limited. And I think that's six bed spaces. So in the whole of London, that's the only specific spaces we have. And I guess that could be a really important thing for somebody who has experienced homophobic hate crime, a real anxiety about going into a space that isn't LGBT specific. Yeah, definitely. Um, so again, even with um, the women that I support who I identify as lesbian or bi, they may not feel comfortable going into a women-only space and a refuge. It's similar to what I was describing before, is like if they don't recognise um, themselves as the victim that that organisation is supporting, then they maybe wouldn't think that that refuge was like refuge was for them. I think it's kind of still described as um, a service for women who are fleeing men, um, and obviously that can be the case for some of our clients, but. Um, but then maybe they're not asked about their full story and they're maybe not getting the support that they need. Um, I have supported women who are in refuges who feel really safe and supported, uh, whether they're out to their support worker or not. 
Um, but I have also experienced quite a lot of my client, like clients that I have supported who are wanting to leave refuges because they don't feel like it's a safe environment. Um, they maybe they maybe come out to other service users in the refuge and they're not supported. And it has some on some occasions it's led to kind of homophobic and biphobic abuse within the refuges. It's really important that refuges think about you know their policies in terms of how they're gonna you know tackle homophobia biphobia within refuges definitely and i think um a lot of the cases i've seen are refuges that um you know they're really well-known refuges i know that they do great work and often it's stuff to do with the service users services users are going to argue but i think it's about recognizing when it's not just like squabbles between residents um i've worked in refuges before so I know what it can be like but I think it's about recognising actually when it is abuse and when it can be seen as a hate crime because you're meant you know you go to refuge you only go to refuge if you need a safe space and if that safe space isn't creative then there's really nowhere for people to go um, and you shouldn't have to suffer abuse all over again and so I think yeah it's about obviously asking the question about people's sexuality and gender identity so that you're aware of who your service users are, um, kind of, you know, developing a needs-led response and a service. Don't don't treat everyone the same. Like I think as well, because it, it's we're not expecting all services to know every single thing and everything, you know, best to support people. But I think, like, if you know that you've got LGBT clients, then you can link in with local organisations that might be able to provide a bit more advice or a bit or training to staff. So I think there's one thing asking the question, but we don't want it to become kind of a paper exercise. I think yeah, it's great to ask that question on one side to find out whether even any LGBT people are accessing your service, because I think if they're not, then that's a problem. Like, why are they not? And then it makes you can help you reflect. But yeah, not just asking it just to tick a box, because I think if you're not able to then provide the relevant support, and raise awareness of staff like within your staff team then it's something that you need to look at as well you need to feel that when you ask that question if the client says well why are you asking that you're yeah. really confident in your reasons for asking yeah. it and that you're going to you know use that in a way that's going to benefit them and why yeah. the service users definitely it's like all the questions we ask obviously as a caseworker and you ask a million questions you have long forms and most of the questions might seem irrelevant or even nosy to the person you're supporting but it's always the same kind of answer for anything it's like the more you know about that person the better they can be supported by your service so it's exactly the same you know we ask people's religion and ethnicity and there's a reason behind that yes there is also the monitoring and evaluation of your service and whether you've got kind of gaps or training needs within staff but also if you know that someone is identifying as LGBT, then you can, you know, you know, that that's something else that you need to think about and how to best to support them. I think a, a lot of LGBT people actually feel very validated by being asked as well, yeah. because it's so much easier uh, to answer that question than to think about, well, when I'm going to pick my moment to correct this person yes. and make <laughs> yes. this disclosure about my sexual orientation definitely. and my gender identity. No, that's definitely true. I think if you are making if you are asking that question or you show anything in your organization that will validate an lgbt person so 
even if it's just that on your toilet door you have a rainbow or something like that or if you're asking that question in the initial assessment then you know that you can answer it like you say if there's never that kind of opportunity then it's more likely than not that people aren't going to say anything um and I think you you know you can't expect everyone to answer that question like how they want you know if they don't say that they identify as LGBT in the first instance then it is fine obviously there's loads of information I'm sure our clients don't tell us but I think it's if you're opening that up then if they do feel comfortable later on then they'll know that you're the person that asked that question and they'll feel like they've got someone to go to. And you said to me that as well as accessing refuge there can be some other barriers to LGBT people around housing. Can you say a bit more about some of the issues with statutory housing provision? Yeah so I think um, you know anyone who's working in the domestic abuse field has issues with um, supporting their clients to access statutory housing. I think um, there is still a need for statutory housing services in local councils to have more awareness of domestic abuse in general. Um, I think training is now kind of getting better and more staff are trained on domestic abuse. But I think from an LGBT perspective, the kind of they're getting the basic domestic abuse training, which potentially doesn't even include um, that it happens to LGBT people. It's still focused very much on, you know, if you have a female client come through your door in distress and, you know, that kind of image of what people class as a victim. So I think um, there's still a lot of work to be done there. Um, Stonewall Housing goes and like works nationally, um, training other housing organisations and support providers on raising kind of the awareness of LGBT issues and um, access and housing. So that's something that we can offer. Um, but yeah, in general, I guess um, when I'm supporting clients to access housing services, Often they, again, it's the same kind of issues, they don't ask people's sexuality or gender identity. Um, a lot of um, our clients don't really feel that comfortable um, coming out in kind of mainstream services. Um, and if that's maybe why that we're there to support them. Um, a lot of our clients will be single homeless people. So the issues around access and housing for a single homeless person, unless you can prove that you're in priority needs, then you know you're you're looking at alternative accommodation. Um, in London, that I think that's probably a bigger issue than other places. But yeah, the lack of housing everywhere is obviously a huge, huge problem. So if yeah, if you can't prove that you're in priority need or vulnerable in another way, um, then yeah, you you're basically going to be turned away. So. A lot of our clients don't flee or with their children or they may not have children so that's kind of quite a big issue we always kind of having to prove that they are in priority need and that would echo some of our findings when we look at our data that comes from domestic abuse services that um, lgbt victims of domestic abuse are presenting with some really complex yeah. uh, additional needs, such as yeah. and mental health problems, for yeah. example. So we're talking about uh, a very vulnerable group of people, um, often having multiple perpetrators that they're at risk from. Yeah. Um, so not having secure yeah. housing is, is going to be a real concern. Definitely. I think um, we find a lot with a lot of especially the clients that I'm supporting that may be a little, you know, not in kind of the 18 to 25 bracket, but they may be a bit older. Um, 
we do find it with younger people as well, but maybe a bit older and they're fleeing domestic abuse, it might not be the first time they've been in an abusive relationship. Like I was saying earlier, in terms of they may not have that family connection because of them not being accepted. Um, they may have had to move to London and leave where they're originally from, whether that's in the UK or not. Um, and a lot of the time, not being able, not being comfortable on accessing services means that they've developed coping strategies. So like you say, there are a lot of LGBT clients that we see on a daily basis who have really high needs, um, high complex needs. So we've got a, a no, high number of clients with mental health support needs, um, drug and alcohol abuse. Um, so when you're approaching statutory services or approaching any housing providers, these can be additional barriers to finding accommodation. You know, that's really apparent in any service, including the women's sector. So, um, yeah, if in one instance, if you're fleeing domestic abuse and you have additional vulnerabilities and that can be proved to the council, then you may be more likely to get support. Um, but in terms of referring people to refuge and support accommodation and kind of any housing provider that says, you know, we don't take anyone who's high risk or high needs, then it's really, really difficult. Um, when LGBT clients are accessing housing, if they don't, if they're not seen as in priority need, then they're often um, told to access emergency hostels. So like, I guess, winter night shelters that have kind of come to an end recently, but winter night shelters and emergency hostels, which a lot of our clients don't see as a reasonable safe space for them. Um, particularly our trans clients. So, um, you know, within emergency hostels, there's kind of a traditional view that they're quite male-centred, they're quite an aggressive space. That's obviously not always the case, but there can, there is a lot of our clients have had history of homophobic, biophobic and transphobic abuse within those centres. So um, I think for trans people, particularly trans women, um, they're at higher risk of abuse kind of anyway and put being placed in those kind of environments um, is often seen as just not suitable for them. Um, and that's something that we hear from our clients a lot. Um, I think, you know, trans people also have specific needs. So it need, there needs to be access to certain spaces where, um, you know, they can access their medication or, you know, just kind of get the treatment that they need. Um, so I think as well for emergency hostels, it's like with refuges, it's not, it's just not an easy space for LGBT people. Something we're hearing through Spotlights is that a lot of LGBT people can be estranged from their family or for some even in fear of their family. And so the networks that they build up, um, their, their friends, the, the, the LGBT services they access are, are hugely important. Does that cause issues for your clients when they're approaching housing to be to be rehomed? Yeah, I think so. I think, um, like with anyone, I think if you're within London and you've got support services that you're linked in with and you've got kind of a network, then being told by housing that, yes, we can support you, but we will be moving you out of the area that you know um, is really, really difficult. I mean, it's an issue with domestic abuse more generally because obviously, we, as we all know, the survivor has to move. Um, and I think, you know, we're a long way away from that changing. So I think, yeah, a lot of the time people would rather, if they've got a connection, they would rather sofa surf um, or find that one friend or that one family member that they feel comfortable with um, 
and stay in their home. Um, with that, we find that I think within rough sleepers, LGBT people are maybe miscounted and like ignored or kind of not found in those big counts because they kind of make up a high proportion of the hidden homeless communities, so people who are sofa surfing. Or um, we also find, I guess, within the network, there are issues within sofa surfing with friends because I think maybe if you're young and you've come to London, for an example, um, to kind of embrace your sexuality and your gender identity, be part of like the scene or um, the network within London, then if you flee your partner, then maybe your partner is knows the same people as you, obviously has the same connections and finding somewhere to stay that's safe um, is really, really difficult as well. So I guess it can work both ways. It's often not a safe option, but it's safer than sleeping on the streets for a lot of our clients. And also, to, I guess, in terms of targeting, that we know, you know, perpetrators can be very adept at targeting and you can see, therefore, how young LGBT people may well be targeted. You know, you can stay with me and I'll look after you and I'll give you access to this scene that yeah. you really want to have and that the power that, that comes with that that then can be used. Yeah, definitely. I think... Um with our young people or like our younger clients so to be honest people who've just come out a lot later in life I think there there's there is kind of a few clients that we have come through our service who if it's their first relationship where they're open and out um, then there is sometimes that power and control element that can play out in that that you know it's maybe this is what it's meant to be like or this is kind of you're the only person that knows. Um, so there are risks of that um, and people being a bit more vulnerable and open to kind of, yeah, that power and control and the abuse that comes with that, um, especially. And in terms of the overlap then between domestic abuse and hate crime, how do yeah. homophobic hate crime, your clients, what's, you know, when those two issues converge, what, what sort of problems does that yeah. cause? I mean, I do think going back to kind of them being underrepresented in kind of mainstream domestic abuse services and mainstream support services to be honest I think when looking at clients that I support within the domestic abuse kind of aspect a lot of our clients have experienced abuse for their whole lives within a like different kind of arenas and how it plays out is differently but if they've maybe grown up being bullied in school and then have not had a really negative relationship with their family maybe potentially experienced abuse by their family and then they move to a city where they think right I'll be myself and then they end up in an abusive relationship it takes a long long time for people to recognize that actually it's not okay and it's not right um so I think yeah that's kind of when other things come into play like I was saying about developing coping strategies and surviving really like if that's all you know um, then it's hard to recognise that that's wrong. Um, and I think that's also plays into it when accessing services, they access, they're accessing services a lot later. Um, and if those services that they are going to aren't even asking about their sexuality or gender identity, that is that pretty much their whole life that they're ignoring and how can you support someone if you don't know the full picture? Um, if they do, like if there are honest and come out to the service and they don't best support them, then, you know, it's that if that's the first person they've told their story to and they don't really understand or they don't ask questions about 
multiple abuse or multiple perpetrators or the right questions about whether they've experienced domestic abuse or sexual violence and like different things that come about then I guess they may not trust accessing services in the future unless they are LGBT specific. We know young people in general are very much at risk um, of abusive relationships because of that experiential power that their partner potentially has but I think you know what's clearly uh, an additional factor for, for young LGBT people is that that first relationship um, may also be very tied up with them discovering and sort of celebrating their identity mm. and how difficult that must be to separate out that this is an abusive relationship um, and and still kind of claim that identity that they've been really trying yeah. to fight for. Yeah, definitely. And I think um, particularly around relationships where there's use of coercive control. Um, so clients that maybe aren't experiencing physical abuse, but if it's their first relationship within the LGBT community and then, you know, the kind of, like, things, it might seem silly, but things like, oh, this is how you're meant to have your hair, this is how you're meant to dress to fit in with the community, this is how you're meant to do this, this is the bars that you're meant to go to. Um, but great, if that's, like, a kind of equal balance in the relationship and you feel comfortable and that's what you want, but I have seen a number of times people who don't feel comfortable and they're going along with this, and it, it, it's kind of, like, it, yeah, it plays out as coercive control and it, it's even harder to recognise, um, I think, when it's something that you think that you've wanted and that's the scene that you wanted to be in for your whole life. Um, so, yeah. So some of the traditional kind of housing options that would be offered to someone experiencing domestic abuse are going to be inappropriate and risky for a lot of your client group. So where where do you refer people? Where do people yeah. get housed when they're facing these issues? Yeah, I mean, obviously it's really difficult. Um, in terms of um, domestic abuse survivors anyway, it's really, really difficult unless changes are had to see that as being in priority, you know, you should be in priority need if you're experiencing domestic abuse like they do in Wales. It's going to always be difficult. Um, so yeah, it's it. we released a Finding Safe Spaces report a few years back and um, it was found that around 40% of those LGBT people who we interviewed who were rough sleeping uh, were rough sleeping because um, they'd fled domestic abuse and they had nowhere else to go. So it's quite a high proportion. Um, so yeah, I guess LGBT survivors often they maybe don't reach our service or hear about our service until they are sleeping rough. Um, it's not necessarily seen as a safe option for anyone, but um, for LGBT people, like I said before, they take up quite a lot of proportion of the hidden homeless. So, you know, trying to find somewhere to stay, um, whether it's a friend or a family, um, to sofa surf. Um, but a high number of our um, clients, particularly the men, um, find it safer actually to spend their night in an all-night club, in an all-night cafe, in a sauna, than sleeping rough on the streets or kind of, you know, sofa surfing with someone who potentially their perpetrator may know. Um, Which doesn't sound safe at all, so no. it sounds like it's like they're choosing yeah, between definitely. several dangerous options, which is the least dangerous. Definitely, and I think, um, you know, we've we've always got to kind of go from like, we def like we support people from a client-led response and actually 
they've survived up until this point so they know best really they know that sleeping you know spending the night in a sauna or spending the night in an all like an all night club rather than sleeping on the streets like you an element of us has to accept that that is the safer option for them so we obviously do kind of intensive casework to try and search out their other options trying even if it's trying to get people into private rented trying to help them approach the local council referring them to support accommodation um and i think you know particularly for certain groups of people um if they are if they are at risk of sleeping on the street that night um they also might find it they also often say that it's safer to find somewhere to sleep in exchange for sex so this was becoming increasingly like i guess easier with apps like grinder so um grinder is an app for gay and bi men so you know exchanging sex for accommodation is really it's just becoming more of an issue um when asked, um, clients don't tend to see it as kind of in it, like, you know, that they're actually sex working or that they're exchanging um, sex for something. But when you kind of discuss, okay, have you slept somewhere last night and has anything happened and did you go there purposely so that you, you know, weren't on the streets, then it is a conversation that comes up quite a lot. Um, so, yeah, there's kind of a lot of new things that are happening that um, I guess the community, it's, within the community um, seen as the safer option or it's just a possible option for people. And the, the risks there around sexual violence, especially for young people and that blurring then of consent and what free consent really yeah. means and um, just some real added complexities yeah. there. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's like anyone, if you're in that kind of vulnerable situation where you're having to choose between a night on the streets or a night in a stranger's house then yeah you know what you're going to go through with or you know in terms of issues of consent it really really does get complicated and a lot of our clients may not like want to even talk about it um and it's those kind of things are stuff that if they're then maybe a week later approaching a local council like are if the council aren't asking whether someone's sexuality or gender identity or any housing provider, if they're not asking those questions, then there may be a lot of someone's situation that isn't being disclosed and they're not getting support with. So, so following on from that, you mentioned that Stonewall Housing offer training. Could you give us yeah. an idea of some of the kind of topics you would cover yeah. when you're training other providers yeah so a lot of our training um we have my one of my managers tina um she run she's the national engagement um manager so basically we do work nationally in terms of our kind of consultations um and our kind of campaigning and approaching our training so um we work with housing providers and organization support services um who potentially will have lgbt clients um and we can train on really kind of the issues that I guess I've talked about um, it's not all related to domestic abuse we we do deliver some training on LGBT domestic abuse um, more housing generally and homelessness issues and also um, we have projects working on how best to support older LGBT people as well who are in like care homes or supported accommodation and um, so it's quite broad and um, 
a lot of our training is based on our finding safe spaces report which kind of plays into a lot of the issues around um, the reasons why LGBT specific services are important um, the different experiences of homelessness and access and housing for LGBT people um, and then it plays into how services can create a more LGBT inclusive space. We did a previous spotlight focusing on older people and their experiences of domestic abuse and it feels to me like there's um, there's a whole group that's often overlooked there around older LGBT yeah. people who we know that the monitoring isn't great as it is but my guess would be that older LGBT people uh, are even less likely to be asked yes. about their sexuality yeah. and gender identity. I imagine that is true yeah I think um, I have a few clients that are kind of over 50 over 60 I mean over 50 I won't class that as old but I think as well as the issue of people's different services have different categorization of what is classed as yeah. an older person in their client group um yeah and I imagine that it's even harder for those people to access support and um, I know that the clients that I work with that are around, around 60 or above are even more isolated than any of my other clients they've potentially moved countries several times lost several family members never ever been out to anyone you know had experienced abuse for their whole lives like and you know some sometimes that's not the case but I, I see it more in older LGBT people definitely kind of the increased isolation and not knowing where to go because I think a lot of actual a lot of funded LGBT services now probably didn't exist when they initially needed them yeah so you know that's something as well they're often quite surprised at what's out there yeah and whether they um whether it's okay for them to pick up the phone and talk about something I think there can be a pressure for people to feel yeah. like if it happened a long time ago yeah. I, I sh it shouldn't be affecting me now and of yeah. course we just know that's not how trauma works Definitely. and I think it's a I think you know there's they may not it's again it's that kind of do you see yourself as that person in that story or in that news report or do you you know or those people that are accessing that services. So for older LGBT people, even kind of some of the services that may be seen as like, come to our queer friendly space, even the use of that word queer may Absolutely. be seen as really negative for them. And they may be like, oh, that's something that I would love to get involved in, but it's not really me. And it's yeah. not how I see myself. And Or they may be like, oh, you know, what's this? Like, they see quite a negative view of it. So again, it's just narrowing down those services that they can access completely. So you've talked about the importance of you know asking people about their sexual orientation and their gender identity and understanding why you're asking that question. Yeah. Um, and this is difficult, but in a kind of a, a, a nutshell, could you summarise some other kind of good practice yeah. points that people should be aiming for to make it a really inclusive space? Yeah, definitely. So yeah, highlighting definitely about monitoring. So don't just ask the question for a tick box but making sure that um you're asking it and you, all your staff know why it's important to ask so I guess making sure that the whole staff team is aware um and on top of that if you are starting to ask these questions then make sure staff are not only aware of why but how so best to support those clients so um yeah we deliver training but I'm sure if you're not um you know you can link in with other local LGBT services whether it's not a frontline service because they are very few and far between, but maybe like a local LGBT support group or a youth group 
just a, an organization in your community that may like know more about it because we do not expect everyone to know everything um i think yeah so knowing your local services and signposting checking language is one thing <laughs> like the terminology is getting like there's more and more words that are being used um within the lgbt community um some of those words are fine to use if you're in the community some of those from outside perspective not great but i think um it's never we never expect everyone to know everything and all those terms but just kind of like taking a bit of time to reflect on your organization and seeing and checking the lgbt terminology um again really it's just leading from the client if whether you have an lgbt client or not sat in front of you it's just asking them how they would like to be referred and their name and potentially asking their pronouns so whether they would like to be referred as he or she or they and just asking forever asking and not making assumptions so don't make an assumption on kind of who's in front of you really and that's kind of the case I'd like to think for like a lot of things um I think particularly around um kind of supporting survivors of domestic abuse within the women's sector and LB women approaching services never assume that if if they're ringing your service that the perpetrator is a male um and even if the perpetrator is a male do not assume that the woman is the woman identifies as straight or heterosexual because i think you know everyone's done that before everyone's busy on helplines and busy in their case where to just miss a few questions out because it's easier to just tick a few boxes than have to keep a client on the phone for like even longer um, but it is really, really important to ask those questions. Um, I think involve LGBT people. So if you do start monitoring and you realise you do have LGBT clients, then get them involved and ask, you know, try and create some sort of, I guess, like service user group that can be like, right, how can we better support you? How can we better, like, kind of advertise our services somewhere that is LGBT friendly? Like, you know, how can we celebrate this um and if you are doing great things do celebrate it so linking in with services but going to pride or you know kind of putting a rainbow flag or wearing rainbow lanyards i think just kind of making kind of visible statements so that you are attracting those people that need help because people lgbt people do experience domestic abuse and those clients kind of are out there and those people are out there that need services and there aren't enough services that are specific, so it would be great if everyone could kind of be more inclusive. Thank you so much. I have learned absolutely loads speaking with you this afternoon. So thank, thank you, you for, <laughs> for coming in and doing this podcast with us. Thank you. Thanks.